Well, thank you for your welcome. I'm glad for the opportunity to be able to speak about John and Charles Wesley. My father, when he was alive, um, told me of how over 200 years ago my several times great grandfather was converted through the preaching of John Wesley on one of his visits to Northern Ireland. So I'm grateful to God for the ministry of John Wesley. Now, the introductory leaflet to this lecture states that the Wesleys were both tireless preachers of the gospel mightily used in the 18th century revival. And what I propose to do in this lecture is, first of all, to outline the general and the religious background to the period, and then to define what I understand by the term revival, setting out some of the elements um, which are to be found in a biblical revival. And then I propose to look at the lives of John and Charles Wesley, seeking to draw out practical lessons for our own day, our aim being that of equipping Christians for action, the overall aim of these Christian Institute lectures. So first of all then, um, the general background of this period. In the 18th century, Wales and most of England was rural, roads were poor, coach travel was expensive, much of the housing was primitive, morally things were at a low ebb, the process of distillation had been discovered, cheap gin was being imported, in London one shop in every six was a gin shop, uh, drunkenness was rife, um, dead drunk for a penny, dead drunk for tuppence was an accurate saying. The staple food of the poorer classes was oatmeal and barley bread with few fresh vegetables. In the middle of the century, the standard wage for a man was sixpence a day, two and a half p. Uh, women could earn up to threepence a day during a good harvest. The standards at the theatre were particularly low. The royal court failed to set a good example. Gambling was rife. Uh, in Westminster alone, there were 296 uh, card tables just for one card game alone. Um, the entertainments of the day included badger baiting, cockfighting, bull baiting, dog tailing and goose riding, whatever that was. Um, there was no organised police force. Crime was on the increase. Uh, capital punishment um, could be carried out for between 250 and 260 crimes. And Dr Johnson states that there were so many hangings that uh, he was concerned that the Navy might run out of rope. Luke Tyman, um, historian of um, both the Wesleys and Whitfield, records how the House of Lords set up a committee, quote, to examine into the causes of the present notorious immorality and profaneness, unquote. And they discovered a club whose members were known as blasters, who professed to worship the devil, pray to him and drink his health. So on to the religious background. Many ordinary folk were superstitious. One of the books that I consulted uh, mentions how John Wesley believed in fairies. I've not actually found uh, the quote in his own writing to substantiate that, but um, I think the Wesleys certainly believed that um, their rectory at Epworth was haunted by old Geoffrey, uh, the ghost of a former inhabitant there, so it was believed. Um, absenteeism in many of the parish churches was rife. Many clergy were extremely poor. Um, in the Diocese of St. David's, for example, two-thirds of the clergy had no parsonage. And with the Toleration Act of, towards the end of the previous century in 1689, 
there was a growing desire to agree, to differ, whilst in certain respects non-conformists were second-class citizens. Um, there was a greater degree of toleration. No conviction was worth dying for. The age of enthusiasm was over. In fact, there seemed to be toleration of all, except those who were enthusiastic or assured of what they believe. Does history repeat itself, I ask? The content of the sermon had gradually undergone a change. In the old Puritan sermons of the 17th century, the text was examined closely and was then opened up bit by bit. There was an emphasis on the doctrine and an application of it. And this had given way to a sermon which, in many places, emphasised duty. Its aim was to be reasonable, to be clear, and to be lucid. And the moral element was emphasised. Sin, atonement, salvation, and revelation were unacceptable words. Again, does history repeat itself? The idea of God intervening in history was becoming an increasingly strange idea. The emphasis was on the human reason rather than on God revealing himself to us. That which is above or beyond reason was discarded and all that we believe must be grounded in human experience. So things moved um, towards man and his reason being at the centre rather than God and his revelation. And this enlightenment was seen particularly in 18th century Germany. Bart summed it up as this, a system founded upon the presupposition of faith in the omnipotence of human reason. God was seen as a clockmaker or a remote architect. He created, he set the world into motion, and then he withdrew. The thinking of some of these deists was that if God had to intervene to keep things going, then he wouldn't be perfect. So the idea of God intervening in human history was becoming less and less uh, accepted. Miracles were seen as being mere superstition. And so what you have is a rationalism which is linked with a belief in a natural rather than revealed religion. To many, Jesus was just a good teacher, um, not saviour or redeemer. And it was into this situation that God raised up men such as the Wesleys and Whitfield and Harris and others. They didn't actually engage themselves in an analysis of the current situation, but they preached the gospel which completely transformed it. Richard Pike puts it this, thus. Wesley didn't, did not waste his time deploring the evils of his day. He attacked them, and he attacked them by preaching repentance and conversion. He knew that the only hope of the corrupt heart was a new birth. From there, I'd like us to think briefly, well, what is revival? Jonathan Edwards, who was the human instrument of the Great Awakening in Northampton, Massachusetts, New England, in 1734-5, defined it as a great outpouring of the Spirit. He states, though there be a more constant influence of the Spirit attending his ordinances, yet the way in which greater things have been done is by effusions at special seasons of mercy. Another defines revival as a copious effusion of the influence of divine grace. So, what are the elements of a biblical revival, or some of them? First of all, there's a heightening of normal Christianity. 
Reverend Ian Murray puts it this way. The first thing to be looked for in an alleged revival is not the extraordinary and the unusual, but the normal work of the Spirit. In any biblical revival, the norm is heightened. It is not suspended while another type of Christianity is introduced. Yes, during times of revival, conviction of sin may be deeper. Feelings and emotions may be particularly intense. But there are, I suggest, no particular physical manifestations or signs which automatically authenticate the work. Secondly, there's an awareness of the nearness of God, both in personal experience of the preacher and among the congregation. Edwards, speaking of Northampton in 1735, provides a pertinent example of this. He states, The town seemed to be full of the presence of God. Thirdly, remarkable success attends gospel preaching. For instance, between 1740 and 1742, approximately 50,000 souls were added to the New England churches. Meanwhile, in London, after the first service at Whitfield's Tabernacle in London, 350 people were received into the society in one day. Crowds of more than 30,000 attended open-air preaching within six weeks of the first open-air service. Reverend Cooper, a minister in Boston, New England, records how in one week more people came to him to see him under conviction of sin than had done so in the previous 24 years of his ministry put together. More local example, Reverend Grimshaw, vicar of Howarth, saw a growth under his ministry from 12 communicants to 1,200. Fourthly, the spirit of prayer, both personal and corporate, is revived. For example, in Kirchentilch in Scotland, the awakening there followed a children's barn prayer meeting. To quote John Wesley, speaking of um, a meeting, a society meeting with Moravian Christians on New Year's, day says this about three in the morning as we were continuing instant in prayer the power of God came mightily upon us insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy many fell to the ground as soon as we were recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty we broke out with one voice we praise thee O God we acknowledge thee to be the Lord Fifthly, there's a growing love for the word of God, an absolute confidence in its authority. The preaching is solidly biblically based and doctrinal. For instance, one of the verses on which John Wesley often preached in the open air was 1 Corinthians 1.30. But of him, ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and Redemption, not a very easy text um, at first sight. Then, sixthly, there's a deep concern for the glory of God. This is why at times the debate between some of the men of God, such as Wesley and Whitfield, could be so heated because they felt that a wrong interpretation or application of Scripture reflected on God's honour. And therefore, at times, um, their Um, own attitude towards each other could be um, at fault 
but their desire behind that was over the glory of God. And as they saw it, error must be dealt with. But seventhly, often intermixed with a genuine work of the Spirit, there was error, excess or counterfeit. Why that should be so, it's difficult to say, but it seems that that always has been the case. But we need to remember that revival is more than just evangelistic activity, more than following a particular pattern, doing things in a certain way. The emphasis is on God's initiative, God intervening. So then with that background in mind, I'd like us to turn now to the, to the Wesley family John and Charles's paternal grandfather, Bartholomew Wesley, was one of the Puritans who was ejected from his living in 1662 when 2,000 Puritan preachers left the established church uh, because they felt they couldn't submit to the Book of Common Prayer. And his son, Bartholomew, John's grandfather, was a protege of the Puritan John Owen, um, he was at college with many of the great Puritan leaders. Interestingly, he was never Episcopally ordained, was approved by Cromwell's triers, and was an itinerant evangelist. And he married the daughter of John White, one of the assessors of the Westminster Assembly. He was imprisoned on four occasions and died at the age of 34, predeceasing his father by one year. On the other side of the family, Wesley's maternal grandfather was no less distinguished, Dr. Samuel Annesley. Apparently at the age of six, he was reading 20 chapters of the Bible a day, a practice which he continued throughout his life. He was minister of St. Giles Cripplegate in London, the church where Oliver Cromwell was married and Fox and John Milton were buried. He too was ejected from his living uh, in 1662 and became the co-founder of a non-conformist meeting house, a dissenting meeting house in Bishopsgate Street, London, where he remained for 30 years. He carried out the first public ordination of non-conformists after the Great Ejection. And he married the daughter of another John White, MP for Southwark, who was one of the assessors of the Westminster Assembly of Divines. It was this assembly that prepared the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechisms, and the directory for public worship. So we see how in the, to the background of the Wesleys, you've had ministers galore. His grandparents on both sides were Puritan nonconformists. Interestingly, both his parents were loyal Anglicans. And this is how that came about. Samuel, John's father, was preparing for um, the dissenting ministry when he was asked as part of his training uh, to refute an Anglican attack on the dissenters. Um, however, he was convinced with their arguments and became an ardent and convinced Anglican. Meanwhile, uh, Susanna Wesley, who was John's mother, um, she was the 25th child born to uh, Samuel Annesley and his wife. Um, she became an Anglican at the age of 13. Uh, whether they regarded it then as teenage rebellion, I don't know. But bearing in mind her father was um, you know, probably the most prominent nonconformist minister uh, in London, uh, this must have come as quite a shock. Um, she was obviously a girl of great determination. Samuel Wesley met Susanna when he was 20 and she was 13. And after um, his ordination, um, 
and his called to his first curacy on a salary of £28 a week, he married Susanna. I had no excuse in being married so hastily before my fortunes were settled, unless a most passionate love be taken for one. He was frequently in debt. Um, he moved to, uh, to South Ormsby on £50 a year. Six children were born there in six years. The next move was to uh, um, Epworth in Lincolnshire, where he was on £200 a year, but before long he was £300 in debt. He didn't get on with many of his parishioners. He was strict. We read of this of his treatment of one adulterer. <coughs> Excuse me. The criminal was seen standing for three successive Sabbaths on the damp mud floor in the centre of the church without shoes or stockings, bareheaded, covered with a white sheet and shivering with cold. Uh, he was persecuted in various ways. His crop of flax was burned. His mastiff was wounded. His cattle were stabbed. Uh, one of his creditors had him imprisoned um, for an outstanding debt of £30. Uh, he was in debt as prison for upwards of four months and the family were left to survive on bread and milk. After 14 years of marriage, Samuel realised that uh, his wife Susanna failed to say amen to his prayer for the King William of Orange because she believed that King James, then in exile, was the rightful king, believing in the divine right of kings. This was a serious business, so he left her and went to London, uh, but promised that he'd support the family. He returned to finalise domestic matters prior to his leaving for good. On reaching the end of Epworth, the rectory caught fire, destroying two-thirds of it, so he decided to stay and rebuild it. Fortunately, or unfortunately, uh, King William of Orange died. Uh, unfortunately for King William, but fortunately for the Wesley. Um, because when... Um, Queen Anne, the second daughter of James II, uh, came to the throne. Both Wesleys were happy with that, and so they stayed together. Uh, at Etworth, the family increased. Susanna had, gave birth to 19 children in 21 years. John was born in 1703, child number 15. Charles, born prematurely in December 9, 1707, was number 18. Ten of the 19 survived childhood. On the 9th of February 1709, disaster again struck Epworth Rectory. Again, the three-storey timber building with a thatched roof caught fire. Charles was 40 months old. He was carried to safety by his nurse. Susanna, heavily pregnant at the time, burned her legs in her escape. John, however, five years old, was trapped upstairs. Samuel had gathered the family around him outside, realised it was impossible to get into the rectory to rescue his son, and so he began to commend him to God in prayer. However, a villager ran to the house. There was no ladder. He got another villager to climb onto his shoulders. Little John was peering out of the window through the curtains and he was caught as he jumped from the window seconds before the roof caved inwards. Samuel Wesley then urged his neighbours to join him in prayer saying, Come neighbours, let us kneel down, let us give thanks to God. He has given me all my eight children, let this house go, I am rich enough. John Wesley was to refer to himself as a brand plucked out of the fire and would commemorate this deliverance for years to come. Charles was to write in his journal, um, some years later of his brother, a brand, not once only, plucked out of the fire. A clear reference to his spiritual plucking out of the fire. He believed, as did John's mother, that John's life had been spared for a specific purpose. 
Susanna set out a detailed syllabus for the training of her children. She writes, when turned a year old and some before, they were taught to fear the rod and to cry softly, by which means they escaped abundance of correction they might otherwise have had. No eating or drinking between meals. Her aim was to conquer the children's will as soon as, it, as possible. She explained, self-will is the root of all sin and misery. School lessons were held by her from 9 to 12 and from 2 till 5. She took her duties seriously. And in the evening, each evening of the week, she would have a separate child with her on her own, spend time in prayer for that child. John, or Jackie as he was called by his mother, um, had his turn on Thursdays and Charles on Saturdays. Susanna would lead family devotions when her husband was away at convocation in London each year. And at this time there'd be no afternoon service. The curate was less than inspiring, his favourite theme being the duty of paying debts. Whether this was anything to do uh, with Samuel Wesley always being in debt, I don't know. But these meetings she held were for her family and for servants. Others came until there were 200 present. At this, the curate complained, writing to Samuel. And uh, Susanna <coughs> wrote to her husband saying, I don't want you just to say it's up to you to decide what I should do. I want you to forbid me directly if you want me to stop. I don't want the guilt, um, the guilt uh, to be on my hands if I stop. At the age of 10, John went to Charterhouse School where he was bullied. At 17, he went to Christchurch, Oxford, where he excelled in logic and debate. He graduated and his thoughts went towards ordination. He asked his father on the what the best commentary was for on the Bible. His father said, that is the Bible itself. John was ordained deacon in 1725. At this time he began to see that true religion was seated in the heart. He set apart an hour or two a day for religious retirement. He read Jeremy Taylor's Holy Living and Holy Dying. After it he says he that he resolved to dedicate all my life to God, all my thoughts and words and actions being thoroughly convinced that there was no medium, but that every part of my life, not some only, must either be a sacrifice to God or myself. That is, in effect, to the devil. The following year, he became a fellow of Lincoln College, a post he held until his marriage 25 years later. This gave him financial security and later in life, the freedom to pursue his evangelistic labours. In that year, Charles entered Oxford on a scholarship <coughs> himself. Interestingly, Charles had declined the offer of becoming heir to a wealthy um, relative, Garrett Wesley, as this would have meant a more worldly lifestyle. The offer then was made to Richard Colley instead, who accepted and changed his name to Westerly and was grandfather to the Duke of Wellington. Both Wesleys pursued their studies diligently Charles was becoming increasingly concerned about his own spiritual state. He shared this thought, these thoughts with university colleagues and four of them proposed to attend sacrament each week and to meet together to study. This was the beginning of what became known as the, the Holy Club because their order and method was so strict 
they were derisively nicknamed Methodists. So Methodist actually is a rather rude nickname, uh, but it, it stuck. In November 1729, John assumed the leadership of that group and a social dimension was added. Prison visitation and aid to the poor was included. Thank you. Six years later, Samuel Wesley was dying. His commentary in Latin on Job, which he'd been preparing for over 20 years, needing the patience of Job to do it, was still unfinished. He invited John to take the Epworth living. John declined. Apparently, he later changed his mind, but by that stage, the living had been, been filled. Then, on 25th of April, 1735, Samuel died. Charles writes, He often laid his hand upon my head and said, Be steady. The Christian faith shall surely revise in this kingdom. You shall see it, though I shall not. Then, the next turn of events in the lives of the Wesleys um, was that of the decision to go to the uh, to Georgia, England's newest colony. The governor was a gentleman called Oglethorpe. John was appointed as his chaplain and Charles as his secretary. Their time in Georgia, however, was a total disaster. John stayed there for a year and ten months, Charles for under six months. When they set sail in a ship called the Simmons, along with 20 or so Moravian missionaries, a storm hit the boat. The third time they had a serious storm, the mainsail was split into ribbons. John was afraid, but the Moravian missionaries continued with their service. They continued singing the psalms whilst water gushed into the ship. He was amazed that under threat of death, their faith remained calm. They were unafraid to die. The day after the safe arrival in America, John met Spangenberg, one of the leading Moravian missionaries, Zinzendorf's right-hand man. And John asked his advice, John realising that he himself was afraid to die. This is what Spangenberg said. My brother, have you the witness within yourself? Does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirits that you're a child of God? I was surprised and knew not what to answer. He observed it and asked, do you know Jesus Christ? I paused and said, I know he's the saviour of the world. True, replied he, but do you know he has saved you? I answered, I hope he's died to save me. He only added, do you know yourself? I said, I do, but I fear these were vain words. Things in, in, in among <coughs> excuse me, the work with the Indians didn't turn out as the Wesleys had expected. They were unresponsive to his message. He had an unhappy love affair with Sophie Williamson and then faced legal proceedings because he'd refused her communion. The official list of settlers comments on his departure briefly, it says, run away. <laughs> on returning home to England, he writes... I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Who? What is he that hath delivered me? Sorry. What is he that will deliver me from this heart of unbelief? I have a fair summer religion. Let death look me in the face and my spirit 
is troubled. And then, what have I learned myself? Why, what I least of all expected, that I who went to America to convert others was never myself converted to God. He then goes on to exclaim, the faith I want is a sure trust and confidence in God that through the merits of Christ, my sins are forgiven and I are reconciled to the favour of God. And so he now was aware that he was not a believer. Interestingly, at this time, others had gone through similar experiences. George Whitfield, some three years before, after a couple of years under conviction of sin, fasting, visiting, giving money to the poor, trying everything that he could to get peace with God, um, could say, God was pleased to remove the heavy load to enable me to lay hold of his dear son by a living faith and by giving me the spirit of adoption to seal me unto the day of everlasting redemption. Oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full and big with glory was my soul filled when the weight of my sin went off and an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God and a full assurance of faith broke it upon my disconsolate soul. Meanwhile, the previous year, John Senek, a young man of 18, had gone through similar experiences before realising that salvation was by grace, through faith, that his works could not bring him peace with God. Charles and John were both now in the same position. Charles began to read Luther's commentary on the Galatians. Uh, The man with whom he was staying had come across a copy of that book, had read through the preface and had been converted himself. And then his diary records how that he had to go through the scriptures himself and realise that in the New Testament most references were to conversion being instantaneous. This was something that was new to him. John writes this, To my utter astonishment, I found scarce any instances there of other than instantaneous conversions, scarce any so slow as that of St. Paul, who was for three days in the pangs of the new birth. Should he stop preaching? He asked the Moravian preacher Peter Burler and was told to preach faith till he had it. John came to see that salvation was by grace through faith, but he knew that he didn't have this saving faith. So he started preaching this message. And he found that it was unacceptable to many. Church doors were beginning to be shut to him. And also, some folk were being converted through his preaching, whilst he himself was still in darkness. Then, we read these words. John went to a society meeting at at Aldersgate Street. One was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans about a quarter before nine while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me 
that he hath taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Three days before, Charles had written these words, I felt a violent opposition and reluctance to believe, yet still the Spirit of God strove with my own and evil spirit, till by degrees he chased away the darkness of my unbelief. I found myself convinced. I know not how nor where, and immediately fell to intercession, and I was in a new heaven and a new earth. Charles then writes, towards 10, my brother was brought in triumph by a troop of our friends and declared, I believe we sung in him with great joy and parted with prayer. At midnight I gave myself up to Christ, assured that I was safe, sleeping or waking. Wesley was convinced that God was calling him into a particular work. This wasn't a cause of boasting, but rather of humility. Oh, why is it that so great, so wise, so holy a God will use an instrument such as me? Yea, thou sendest whom thou wilt send, and showest mercy by whom thou wilt show mercy. Amen. Be it then, according to thy will. John Wesley then began to tell others of his conversion. Reactions, as you'd expect, were varied. One Mrs. Hutton exclaimed, If you were not a Christian ever since I knew you, you were a great hypocrite, for you made us all believe you were one. She then wrote to um, John's brother, um, asking him to, quote, Confine or convert Mr. John while he is with you, for after his behaviour on Sunday, May the 28th, when you hear it, you will think him a not-quite-right man. If a stop was not put to it, the mischief he will do wherever he goes among the ignorant but well-meaning Christians will be very great. The following month, John preached at the Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford on salvation by faith. Ephesians 2.8, the verses we read together earlier, by grace are you saved through faith. This sermon is set out quite clearly. It's the first sermon in his uh, in the standard edition of his sermons, he carefully, in his introduction, shows how all is of grace in the Christian life. Then he divides his sermon into three heads, three-point sermons then. First of all, what faith is through which we are saved, which then has five points to it. What is salvation, which is through faith, seven points to that. And then answers to some objections, nine points under that heading. And this is... What he says, not all of the sermon. All the blessings which God hath bestowed upon man are of his mere grace, bounty or favour, his free undeserved favour, favour altogether undeserved, man having no claim to the least of his mercies. Christian faith is then not only an assent to the whole gospel of Christ, but also a full reliance on the blood of Christ, a trust in the merits of his life, death and resurrection, a recumbency upon him as our atonement and our life as given for us and living in us and in consequence hereof a closing with him, a cleaving to him as our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption, that verse again, or in one word, our salvation. John then went on to have doubts. For instance, 
less than eight months after his Aldersgate experience. We read this in his journal. I affirm I am not a Christian now. Indeed, what I might have been, I know not, had I been faithful to the grace then given when expecting nothing less. I received such a sense of the forgiveness of my sins as till then I never knew. But that I am not a Christian at this day, I assuredly, as assuredly know as that Jesus is the Christ. Was he not a Christian? Why was he saying that? Only three days before, he'd mentioned the being at a meeting with the Moravians where God's power came in a really powerful way. The quote we read earlier on. Well, John at this point was being guided by his feelings. He felt that he didn't love God. And because he felt that, and because he felt that the love, joy and peace, the fruits of the Spirit were not in his life, therefore he must not be a Christian. Though I have constantly used all the means of grace for 20 years, I am not a Christian, he could say. Dalimore's assessment of this deserves mention. Failure to see the scriptural teaching of his consent, sorry, of his constant standing in Christ, he concerned himself with his day-to-day state in Christ and the fluctuations that he experienced caused his uncertainty. In other words, he was looking inward. He was being subjective. He was thinking of his own feelings rather than looking at what God had done for him through Christ at his objective standing in Christ. And this, I think, was one of the the weaknesses at this point, judging things on how he felt rather than on what God had done for him. I'll pass on quickly. George Whitfield um, had moved to Bristol. He'd been preaching in the open air for some six weeks. He wrote to John Wesley saying, you must come and water that which what I have planted. John was unsure what to do. Charles was um, against the idea. And so they cast lots and decide, and the lot came out to go. John went. Interestingly, as the years went on, Whitfield gave up this practice, but from time to time, John would continue casting lots. This is John's thought of the open-air preaching. I could scarce reconcile myself at first to this strange way of preaching in the fields, of which he set me an example. On Sunday, having been all day... Sorry, on Sunday, having been all my life till very lately so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church. John's letters reveal that George Whitfield preached three times that Sunday to estimated crowds on two occasions of between six and 7,000, on the third occasion to about 30,000. The following day we read these words, I submitted to be more vile and proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation to about 3,000 people preaching from Isaiah 61. The spirit of, of the Lord is upon me. So began his life's work. He didn't find open air preaching easy, but he was convinced of its value. In the next nine months, he preached 500 and 500 times. Only eight of them were in churches. Churches were being close to what he had to preach, so he preached in the fields. He used to write years later, It is field preaching which does the execution still. 
for usefulness there is none comparable to it. And again, oh, what a victory would Satan gain if he could put an end to field preaching. But that I trust he never will, at least not till my head is laid. And then again, it is the cooping yourselves up in rooms that has damped the work of God, which never was and never will be carried out to any purpose without going out into the highways and hedges and compelling poor sinners to come in. And again, 33 years after his first open air sermon, to this day, field preaching is a cross to me, but I know my commission and see no other way of preaching the gospel to every creature. It wasn't easy, but he knew that he must do it. Before long, dissension set in um, with the work in Bristol over several points of doctrine. Um, there were outward physical manifestations during the preaching, people falling down, crying out, shouting out, um, under conviction of sin. John encouraged this. Um, we read, One that stood by cried out loud with the utmost vehemence, even as in the agonies of death, but we continued in prayer till a new song was put in her mouth, a thanksgiving unto our God. Soon after, two other persons were seized with strong pain and constrained to roar for the disquietness of their heart. So many living witnesses hath God given that his hand is still stretched out to heal and that signs and wonders are even now wrought by his holy child, Jesus. And Senec comments that on occasions when none were agitated in this way, Wesley would pray, Lord, where are thy tokens and thy signs? And I don't remember ever to have seen it otherwise than that on his so praying, several were seized and screamed out. On one occasion when Wesley was preaching on free grace, he writes, I was insensibly led without any previous design to declare strongly and explicitly that God willeth all men to be thus saved and to pray that if this were not the truth of God, he would not suffer the blind to go out of the way. But if it were, he would bear witness to his word. Immediately one and another and another sunk to the earth. They dropped on every side as thunderstruck. To Wesley, these physical manifestations seemed to confirm him in the doctrine that he was preaching. Wesley held that Christ's death was for all in a general way and that it was possible that anyone may be saved. Christ died for us, the, the sins of the world, in a general way. Whitfield and Senec, however, taught that Christ died specifically for the church, the elect, and that their salvation was certain. Also, there were disagreements over whether a believer could lose his salvation or not. Wesley believed that you could. Uh, Whitfield believed that once saved, you were saved forever. Interestingly, when Senec discouraged the physical manifestations in his meetings, they gradually declined. Um, Wesley and Senec also disputed about perfection. Wesley holding that sinless perfection was attainable in this life. Things were made worse by several in the society who went further than Wesley and claimed perfection for themselves. And Mr. Noah's would preach, I am the sinless perfect man. And when he said the Lord's Prayer, he said, forgive them their trespasses and said he never prayed for himself. Um, another danger at this point was that of putting undue emphasis on impulses and impressions on feelings. 
For instance, Senec tells of a condemned prisoner, one William Snoud. He says that, quote, Mr. Wesley sent word to his people in Bristol that he should be executed the Thursday following at three o'clock, at which time they were to pray and fast for him. Accordingly, they met and prayed, and at three, Mr. Maxfield, he was the first um, lay preacher, by the way, and Mrs. Turner broke out in a transport of joy, saying, there, there, I see his soul ascending into paradise. The next news they heard was that the poor man was reprieved for transportation, <laughs> and, and this mortified the perfect people excessively. No disciplinary action was taken. Does history repeat itself? Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, Jonathan Edwards could write, May good souls, both among the clergy and laity, many good souls, both among the clergy and laity, for a while mistook fancy for faith and imagination for revelation. Whitfield's words bear repetition. It is every Christian's bounden duty to be guided by the Spirit of God in conjunction with the written Word of God. Whitfield himself on a couple of occasions, was guided by impulse. For instance, he believed quite strongly that his son would be a great preacher of the gospel. His son died at a few months old. So the danger there of putting undue emphasis on feelings, on impressions. Back in Bristol, um, the situation was getting worse. Uh, Charles wrote to John of the Kingswood Society saying the poisonous of Calvin has drunk up their spirit of love. Eventually, Seneca and um, his followers were dismissed by Wesley from the society. Even though the work in Bristol was started by Whitfield, who at this time was in Georgia, or in America, um, Wesley was a very strong, a very dominant character, and at times could act in a very, very strong way against those with whom he didn't agree and could be quite ruthless. So um, Senec and those who um, were with him were ejected from society. Despite setbacks and disappointments, um, the work went on. 1742 was to be a year of expansion. The centre of the work was London. The second major centre was Bristol. And then... On the 27th of May, 1742, the third part of the triangle was fixed. Newcastle upon Tyne. So let's read Wesley's first impressions. I was surprised so much drunkenness, cursing and swearing, even from the mouths of little children. Do I never remember to have seen and heard before in so small a compass of time? The next comment is worth repetition. If you were faced with that situation, what would you do? Would you think, God can't work here, let's go somewhere easier? This is what Wesley says. Surely this place is ripe for him who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Surely this place is ripe for him who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God is able to work in this situation. On the following Sunday... He preached in Sandgate, which he described as the poorest and most contemptible part of time of town. The open-air meeting began with the singing of the 100th Psalm. Before long, 500 people were gathered to listen. His text was from Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. Charles then came to visit Newcastle. Then John returned six months later, and this is what he writes. I began preaching on the Sunday at 5 a.m., 
a thing never before heard of before in these parts. That was his favorite time for preaching. The men would be getting ready to go down to work, or become, would be, um, and some of the greatest crowds were at the five o'clock service, which Wesley called the glory of Methodism. Um, at four o'clock that day, he preached on one of his favorite texts, By grace are you saved through faith. He preached through Romans in the evenings and Acts in the mornings, spending the afternoon with society members. Now, a society was a group set up um, for those who were awakened. Often, he wouldn't use the word converted. He'd use the word awakened. In other words, those who seemed to be serious about spiritual things. They would then meet together um, and would be then split into bands of between four and twelve people. And he could say this about the society, the grace of God flows here with a wider stream than it did at first either in Bristol or Kingswood, but it does not sink so deep. But the following week, I never saw a work of God in any other place so evenly and gradually carried on. It continually rises step by step. Not so much seems to be done at any one time as hath frequently been at Bristol or London, but something every time. When he returned the following year, he ejected over 60 from the society. To be in the society, he had to be serious. Why were they expelled? Two for cursing and swearing, two habitual Sabbath breakers, 17 for drunkenness, two for retailing spiritus liquors, three for quarreling and brawling, one for beating his wife, three habitual willful liars, four for railing and evil speaking, one for idleness and laziness, 29 for lightness and carelessness. That still left 800. In 1743, the Orphan House was opened in Newcastle. This became his northern office. The work continued to expand. He set out a definite plan for his work. 14 weeks in London, 10 in Bristol, 13 in Newcastle. All these include the surrounding areas. Three in Cornwall and 12 elsewhere. And he says that wherever he would see either one or a thousand men running into hell, wherever it is, I will stop them if I can as a minister of Christ. I will beseech them in his name to turn back and be reconciled to God. Were I to do otherwise, were I to let any soul drop into the pit whom I might have saved from everlasting burnings, I am not satisfied God would accept my plea. Lord, he was not of my parish. To him, the world was his parish. Opposition, I have to go very quickly. Um, there was great opposition to his preaching. Um, in the West Midlands, in Wensbury, uh, the crowd shouted, drown him, hang him, crucify him, strip him. He was stoned in Bolton and Rochdale. An ox was driven into the crowd in London. A bull at Pensford. At Bradford, we read, one called a gentleman who had filled his pockets with rotten eggs. So, yeah, one called a gentleman who had filled his pocket with rotten eggs. But a young man coming unawares clapped his hands on each side and mashed them all at once. In an instant, he was perfume all over. <laughs> Opposition often was led by the clergy and the gentry. He preached anywhere that he could. Um, downs, moors, hollows, open squares, parks, trees, yard, under trees, in a yard, churchyard, bowling green, shooting range, prehistoric mound, a beach, a brickyard, cliffs, you name it. Um, custom house, library, a malt room, 
prisons, workhouses, hospitals, asylums, an army, riding school, anywhere he could get a hearing. And his strength was in the way in which those who heard his preaching were followed up through the work of the societies. Whitfield later could look at his own ministry and compare it with John Wesley's. Whitfield, I think, was the greater preacher in many ways, but he could say this, the souls that were awakened under his ministry, John's that is, he joined in class and thus preserved the fruit of his labour. This I neglected. My people are as a rope of sand. John, it may be worth just very quickly mentioning the family circumstances. John in his early 40s married uh, Sarah Gwynne, the 23-year-old daughter of a Welsh magistrate. They had eight children, five of them dying young. The two sons became professional musicians. It was a happy marriage. Uh, After his marriage, Charles itinerated less, settled in Bristol preaching in the surrounding area, but didn't um, go on as widespread um, preaching tours as he had done before. John, unfortunately, had several unhappy relationships during his life. Um, He fell sick in Newcastle and was nursed by Grace Murray. Unfortunately, another Methodist lay preacher um, had um, also fallen sick and was nursed by the same lady. She was then in a quandary as to which of the two um, to marry. Um, When both proposed, Charles heard of this and came up and arranged for her to marry the other man. Um, They had an agreement, the Wesleys, that... Each would be able to have a say in the marriage of the, of the other. Instead, he married, two years later, he married a sailor's widow called Molly Vazay. Uh, unfortunately, a week before the wedding, he sprained his leg. Um, after his marriage, he ca- carried on his preaching tours but had to kneel to preach. He decided that his life would not change one bit um, despite being married. His wife, however, hated inns horse riding and the poor food, and complained. John says her complaining was like tearing the flesh off his bones. Um, One Methodist preacher says how he entered Wesley's house unexpectedly and found him on the floor, his wife standing over him with some locks of his hair in her hands. After some 20 years, she left him. I have not left her. I have not sent her away. I will not recall her. So... Not a happy time. John Berridge, vicar of Everton, writes, he was um, used greatly of God in the evangelical revival in Everton. Matrimony has quite maimed poor Charles and might have spoiled John and George if a wise master had not graciously sent them a brace of ferrets. (laughs) I mention these just to highlight some of the difficulties in the domestic situation. Relationships between John and Charles at this point became strained. Charles described John's preaching as trifling at times. Finally, the split from the Church of England came when, in 1784, John saw the role of presbyter and bishop as being the same, as being synonymous. Therefore, when he applied unsuccessfully to the bishop for three men who were going to America as missionaries to be ordained and the bishop refused, he felt that he had the right to ordain. So he ordained Dr. Thomas Coke to superintend Methodism in America, although he was actually Episcopally ordained, and then ordained two other men to go with him. Charles wrote, I'm thunderstruck, I cannot believe it. John regarded himself as a 
loyal member of the Church of England, but Charles said ordination is separation. So then, their failings. John was a poor judge of character, intolerant of those with whom he differed at times, harsh in his treatment of them. At times he lacked discernment, unduly subjective and introspective at times. But their strengths. Charles, tremendous hymn writer, writing over 7,000 hymns. John, a tremendous translator of hymns. They were persistent despite persecution and opposition. They were concerned about the whole man, spiritual, educational, setting up schools, reading plans for the lay preachers, concerned about the physical welfare. Wesley wrote a book entitled Primitive Physic. Uh, if you want, I'll tell you some of the uh, cures that he has after, including um, rubbing an onion into your head if you're suffering from baldness. Um, he had an orphan, orphan houses built. He wrote letters opposing slavery. He arranged for a mutual benefit society to be set up so that the poor were able to save. They were both men of discipline. They were men who s tried to bring out the best in others, developing lay leadership. They were men of faith, men of fire. The preaching was logic on fire. But most of all, their evangelistic zeal was extraordinary. John Zett's single aim was that of promoting vital spiritual religion and scriptural holiness. And he was relentless in pursuit of that goal travelling an estimated 250,000 miles, preaching over 40,000 sermons, crossing the Irish Sea 42 times, and going on an evangelistic tour of Holland at the age of 80. May we be enabled to learn from their experience. Thank you very much indeed, uh, John. I'm sure we... All, all learned a great deal from that. Many things that certainly I didn't know. There's a, a short time for questions that you might have to put to John on, on anything that he's said or perhaps he hasn't said. Uh, and any comments um, that you might like to make. Uh, and let, let's take that. And don't, be, don't be afraid of asking the obvious or the simple question. Don't leave it to me to do that. I came here tonight particularly interested because I'm a Methodist and particularly interested in the Wesley Brothers. I, I'm very grateful for what we've been told tonight. Could, could I come in on the point about um, uh, Christian perfection, where Wesley said it, one of the tasks of the Methodist people were to seek after and to retain the state of Christian perfection, which you sort of summed up as loving God with heart and mind and soul and strength and one's neighbours oneself. And he was wise enough to, to qualify this meaning of Christian perfection because it obviously patently impossible. And I think it's very important for us to understand that Wesley did qualify in this way that one in a state of Christian perfection may sin, but if one does so it would never again be deliberate or by calculation or by design, or by preference. That if one should sin in the state of Christian perfection, it would be either by ignorance or by accident. That very reason, therefore, a Methodist should always be in the mood of joyful penitence. I think one other thing I'd like to comment on is the emphasis that he gave to the doctrine of justification by faith, which I think he did because 
Most he was very sound psychologically. And he interpreted justification by faith. That when we come to God in repentance and faith, that God looks upon us and treats us as though we have never sinned. Now he didn't say that God was indifferent to our sin. But no way could one start out upon the path of Christian life without first this assurance mm -hmm. that God would look upon us and treat us as though we had never sinned. One last point, if I could make, the importance of Wesley's work in permitting lay preachers, which, strangely enough, he opposed. It was his mother who counseled him to understand that somebody had taken his service because he unfortunately not turned up or turned up late at Bristol and that was God's answer and um, it's interesting that H.R. Green in his introduction and said that Methodism had saved the country from revolution on the other extreme we've got a man like Crossan who says that you can never understand the movement of trade unionism unless you understood also the contribution that Methodism made to it now undoubtedly by Developing lay preachers, he taught ordinary men who were originally unversed and uneducated to stand on their own two feet and to speak for themselves. And this, I think, is one of the great contributions of the Methodist Society, where people could speak about spiritual things and also about their conditions of work and be inspired to do so by the vision that they got that God loved them. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I think um, you know what you uh, said there about the, the strength of the lay, the development of the lay leadership there, and the work of the classes was of tremendous importance. It was something that, um, for a long time, hadn't you know, had just been used to the, you know, the minister being the one who was responsible for for everything. Um, on the point of Christian perfection, I must admit I find things a little confusing reading different comments at different times as to what exactly was meant. And I think the main concerns that I've come across have been through followers of Wesley and followers of Whitfield who would go further than they themselves um, did and bring into sort of disrepute um, some of the things that Wesley and Whitfield were aiming for. Uh, yeah. Anyone else like to put a question or, or make a comment or observation? Yes. You talked about the Enlightenment at the beginning. Swartzer thought of that period of time as a period when thinking was religious in society. And I gather the impression from when, when Wesley went out preaching they may have been unlearned people, but they recognised sin. They recognised what he was talking about. Now, have you any sort of advice for the modern preacher on, the, on this thing of, of making sin relevant to the modern world? Uh, I think that's something that the others are probably better qualified than I to. Um, to answer, but I think one of the things that you notice is that um, they dealt with the situation as as it was. For instance, one of the things at that time was um, 
the fear of fear of death, and that would be brought into the preaching and applied to the situation before, in the, the century before, the concern was over um, Sabbath breaking. You read of folk coming under conviction of sin because they were breaking the Sabbath, and then that was emphasised in, and uh, in the in the preaching and um, applied. Now, uh, I don't know if others would like to say how today you would apply the same message. Um, on, I don't know. I say I'd be interested to hear what others have got to say on that one. As an invitation. I suppose there are keys in every generation, and one that uh, it might become increasingly the case in our generation is the collapse of the secular. And people feeling disappointed and their hopes dashed. Can you say a bit more, you know, what you mean by the collapse of the secular? Well, people who thought they could manage without God and are not doing very well, aren't we? <laughs> Yeah, apparently he's, he read about between four and five hours a day. Um, much of his um, preparation would be done whilst on horsebike. Um, in later days he had a carriage uh, which was fitted out with bookcase uh, so that when he was travelling between um, preaching engage, uh, appointments he would study. Um, he was tremendously disciplined in the use of his time. Uh, he mentions how he decided how much sleep um, he needed. Um, and he set an alarm, sort of early alarm clock, to go off at a certain um, time, um, which ended up going back from, I think it was like 6 or 7 o'clock, until at, at 4 o'clock he would wake up um, Without inter he'd sleep through without interruption, wake at four, and he decided from then on that he would get up at four o'clock every morning, um, and he'd go to bed early. But he told off one Methodist lay preacher who he was with um, at night who wanted to carry on a conversation that he was going to sleep, and it was quite ruthless um, that um, he would get his sleep. But uh, he said he felt he needed no more than six hours. A woman may need seven, and a child eight. Anybody else is lazy. Um, <laughs> Well, I that's a slight paraphrase, but I think it was roughly six for a man, seven for a woman, eight for a child. Um, but most, much of the preparation was done um, on, on horseback. I was interested that um, these large crowds, you know, these large crowds came to evangelistic meetings, if you like, and they were converted. And there's been a recent survey uh, by the General Assembly, the Church of England, yeah saying that most people are, are not converted at those sort of gatherings, but rather at, um, uh, over a period of time, um, four years or so. How, how do you feel that? Well, I think if you, if you read through the accounts of um, Wesley's open-air preaching, there were many, actually, who were converted in the following weeks, months, through the work of the societies. Those who were, uh, Wesley would say, were awakened um, they were made aware of the seriousness of the things of which he was speaking, who weren't actually converted at the first, op you know, at the actual open air, though there were many who, uh, who I think were. As to why there were the crowds, I think um, 
in some places, having a Methodist local preacher or a Methodist preacher turn up to take, take a meeting was a bit like, somebody, like an astronaut turning up. You just weren't used to anybody turning up. So everybody would turn out to find out what was, um, what was going on. Um, but um, I don't think you can say, well, you know, if we do ABC, we can guarantee certain results. If you look at Whitfield's ministry, you'll find that in, his early, in the early years, around about 1740-42, um, there were thousands who were converted. Later in his ministry, less so. His message hadn't changed. What he was preaching hadn't changed. Um, but there just seemed to be certain seasons, uh, certain periods of um, where the message was the same, but the uh, more were converted at one point than, than another. Um, whether that's a simplistic answer there, which emphasising the you know, sovereignty of God in revival or not, I don't know uh, what you'd, you'd think. Can I ask you to on your comment that you felt that introspection was a weakness that John Wesley had? Oh. Um, in many ways, it seems to me that his capacity for self-analysis and self-criticism drove him on to a point where he realised his um, great spiritual poverty. And if he, if he hadn't had that, he may have been content to live a fairly complacent life. Yeah, um, yeah, I was probably a little unclear there. What I meant was um, in just looking at himself, at his state of mind, at his feelings, and missing out the actual objective realities of the gospel, I think, was, um, was a weakness in that if we look at ourselves, there are days when we feel good, there are days when emotionally we're high, that we're low. And if you judge your spiritual condition on how you are feeling at that time, if you judge whether you're a Christian or not, then I think that can um, be, da be dangerous. All right, I think there's the danger of a false sense of security, um, which needs to be mentioned as well. But I, the point I was trying to get over was that at that stage, um, Wesley went through all sorts of anxiety because of um, changes in his emotional, um, you know, just his emotional feelings after a great spiritual uplift four days later when um, you know, things had cooled down a little. He ended up really being in the depths of despair and despondency. And so that was why I, I, I felt that just looking at subjectively at himself was a weakness. No. But isn't it an interesting thing how um, it seems to me at any rate that a lot of high achievers have been insecure, uh, living a life of pain almost, mm -hmm. and yet accomplishing so much? <laughs> yeah, I think if you look through the lives of there's other men who spring to mind in a similar way, like Luther also would go through great times of dejection and spurgeon. And um, you know, now sort of more modern uh, sort of Martin Martin Lloyd Jones, who have whose ministry was blessed in a tremendous way, but would go through really deep um, dep you know, depression and despondency. I was very struck by reading David Watson's yes, um, biography a few months ago. I was quite depressed actually, yeah. after having read it. To I shouldn't be depressed, but I was. I'm just telling you I was. That, that, uh, that one reads so much of the depression and introspection in, in his own life. And 
didn't come across that way, did it? So was someone going to ask? Yes, Elizabeth. I mean, just, uh, couldn't help but notice the contrast in, in the fact that Susanna Wesley, did you say she had 19 children, or was it more? Mm. And yet she had time to spend with each one child, and t- today's mum doesn't seem to have time to spend with either one or two. Just a comment, really. Mm. Uh, one of the things that made things slightly easy was that they had servants. As well, just on a practical point, that um, you know, she was made sure that she was not disturbed between 9 and 12 and between 2 and 5. Um, and the other tasks were left. There were other domestic um, folk who saw to uh, other things. And the same goes for the, you know, pure, you know, some of the Puritan preachers. You think, you know, how could they do so much? But... Uh, Certain things, responsibilities that we have, as well, they did not, did not have. Did you want to come back, Elizabeth? No, I was going to I say it's... perhaps they got the priorities right. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Chris, uh, the meetings did they have sort of appeals in the modern day sense for people to respond the message or how um, One of the um, things that they did was some folk would sometimes write down on a piece of paper that they wish to speak further um, and um, but they didn't have an appeal in the sense of um, asking folk to come to come forward uh, but you would find that the the preaching um, made it clear that, of the necessity to respond and the seriousness of um, the gospel the seriousness of what was being offered um, but um, the, as far as I, I'm aware, that, uh, there weren't that sort of um, evangelistic appeal. No. I wasn't sorry, yes. yes. The question about Charles Wesley. Charles All these hymns that he wrote, were they popular at his time or did it become more popular after? Yes, a lot of them were. Um, he would publish, say, a volume of his own hymns, which would then be sung at the society meetings. Um, others were doing the same. John Senek published 700 hymns, about nine or so hymn books, which would be sung um, at the meetings, the society meetings. Or if um, someone was getting married, they'd compose a hymn for the, for the marriage. And the interesting thing is that the hymns seem to cover just about every area of life. Um, there'd be hymn to be sung before going to visit a friend, hymn for when you're uh, you know, visiting the sick, hymn for coming back from a journey, um, and almost every imaginable event. And the afternoons are often spent by visiting, in visiting folk in the societies. And often you'd read in the journals and one or the other, you know, prayed with so-and-so, sung and hymn together. So it sounds as if there's almost a duet. Um, but frequently that is what they would, you know, they, they, would, they would do. But yes, they were popular, um, as were the um, hymns of, of Watt, um, Isaac Watts, um, which were written sometime before. I mean, Wesley, when he was, he was dying, um, his closing words, he was singing on his deathbed, I'll praise my maker while, uh, while I have breath. And then the words, I'll praise, I'll praise, were his last words. No, farewell was his last words, sorry. Uh, but uh, you, you find that a number on the deathbed and would be singing, singing hymns, and this would be recorded uh, in great detail. Perhaps a clue to Wesley's hymn writing is, is the one that begins, uh, Forth in thy name, O Lord, I go, my daily labour to pursue, in all I think. 
only the face. The point being that that was a hymn that was particularly put together for working men to sing as they went to work on a Monday morning. And I think this typifies quite a number of Wesley's hymns, plus the fact that he was anxious that here were people who didn't read a great deal, who could at least not doctrinal matters. So let's put Christian doctrine, Methodist emphasis of it, into verse. And that is why you'll find Wesley's hymns are so doctrinal. But some, I think, like that one we sang tonight, with a certain kind of enthusiasm, That's right. gets it out of it, doesn't it? It does. Good theology too. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one. Sorry. Sorry. I think that's certainly one of one of the strengths that, that that you had tremendous theology within the hymns. And just as mentioned this later, I was preaching in a Methodist chapel near where I live, and there's one lady who's been a shepherd um, for most of her life, and she'd say how she she said I'd go into the hills and I'd sing through some of Wesley's hymns, and she said you know it can put it far better than I ever could. Yeah, and uh, yeah. well, I quote you. <laughs> and uh, that, that's it. Yeah, that she could express her yeah. praise to God through singing those hymns in a way which she said otherwise, you know, she just wouldn't be able to put into words. Yeah. Peter, did you write many tunes? Or did other people write tunes for his hymns? Oh. How many? I don't know. You wrote some, did you? I think he wrote some tunes. Got me fixed. I think. Did the tune and the hymn come together? Yeah, I think a, a, a mixture, I think, of tunes that he wrote and also other people's tunes were adapted to it. Mm. One of his relatives, Samuel, I think it was Samuel Sebastian, yes, was, yeah. was a great organist. Yes, yes. And, uh, and uh, he wrote a lot of it. Yes, yes, yes. 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 Both his sons were excellent musicians. Yeah. Charles had felt that they'd both become preachers. But then said he's settled for becoming organist. <laughs> yes. Could I just make a comment, please? Um, the, of course. The talk tonight was very interesting. And you know, when you, when you look over Calvin or Knox or whoever, it's all very interesting. I don't think these men wanted us to be followers of them. You know, what's important is the Christ and the Christ preached. Mm. And I think it would be good if we could remember that. You know? mm. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. I think the words that uh, Adam Smith has on um, John Wesley's tomb are worth repeating. If thou art constrained to bless the instrument, give God the glory. Amen.